This is Dustin, and you found the Kook Jester Show. Hello, and welcome to the Kook Jester Show, everybody. My guest today is Rowan Minion. In 2011, Rowan founded the sports nutrition company Blonix, which is built around real food ingredients and committed to supporting athletic ambition. I personally use the HMB Plus creatine every day. It helps balance out my strength, power, and recovery needs, as well as the chocolate egg white protein. I know it works, but seriously, it is just so tasty. Rowan and I talk about being coachable and understanding who you are as a player, his early days in the lab, and surprisingly, he has advice on how not to start a company. So here is Rowan. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. Hello, Rowan. Welcome to the Kook Jester Show. I am very excited that you're here. Thanks, Dustin. Excited to be here. Being from the UK, and I need to know, is soccer a trigger word for you? <laughs> Absolutely, it is. It's a trigger word for me because I, I always associated it with North American soccer. And it being a very different sport and growing up feeling like they never took it seriously or don't take it seriously in North America. I then went and played soccer, football in North America and learned that they actually do take it very seriously. Yeah. And in some ways, a lot more seriously than we do in the UK in terms of professionalization. But it's still, I can't get over the fact that it's the sport where you hit the ball with your foot and then you give football a name given to another sport. <laughs> I still have a hard time with. Now I live, obviously live in Canada and I coach a soccer team, a football team. And over the last year or so of doing that, I think now I automatically say soccer. That's it. I'm in that, in that realm now. My brother-in-law is from the UK as well. I know what he's talking about, obviously, but I mistake the word all the time. And he's like, do you mean American football or... Football, football. And we could be watching NFL together. And I'm like, you do know what I'm talking about right now. You, yeah. you. <laughs> well, you know, for me, every time I meet somebody, especially in the States, and I say, hey, I, you know, I played football. And they kind of look at me and people at home won't be able to see my stature. But I'm not exactly the biggest guy in the world. And they just look at me up and down very suspiciously, like they don't believe me. You know, it's like, what, what were you, a, a linebacker? What were you? Definitely not. You know, that's the funniest part of it is people still, when I talk, I go into the default and talk about football. People do think I talk about American football. But you did play football at a fairly high level, didn't you? I did. Yeah. I, the highest level I played at was probably uh, Glasgow University. So I played a lot. I trained a hell of a lot. We would train two, two hour sessions a week, full on training. And we would play two games a week. And then we would usually have another training session outside of that. And it was full on playing, running. And it, outside of that, you were in the gym. And we had a lot of teams. We had five teams as the overarching university team. And the top team, the, what we call the first team, they were very close. I think one year they actually qualified for the Scottish Cup, which is the equivalent of the, the FA Cup or like a with all football leagues. So they had the potential to play... Um, a team like Celtic or Rangers or something like that in the draw. So that's the level. It's not quite paid. It's university level, but we had such a good team. So that was probably my highest level. I went over to Iowa State University and, and worked over there, but I was um, matriculated as a student 
So I got to play with the the team there. It was non-varsity, but the quality of the coaching and the pitches that we played on and all of that was really good. And so I got a lot of good coaching there. Um, I would say I became the most polished player being there, but the standard of play wasn't what wasn't as good as at Glasgow. But yeah, many years. I still play now. When not injured, I play. Every once in a while, you play like a pickup game and you realize the fitness that you need. Even if you train for a marathon, you're in no shape to be playing. Yeah. Even just a game of pickup. It's incredible. The high end endurance that you need. The sprint stop, sprint stop. There's nothing like it. It's only only team sport players will will understand that. You know, tennis tennis players. But I played a lot of tennis as a kid. I think that really helped out my my soccer too. Just the leg strength that you need in it but there's no substitution for being out there and playing it how much it'll gas you so playing at a level like that what experience or skills do you get that you can't really get really from anywhere else I think the the biggest one is the level of coaching that you get starting my playing soccer at school and I love playing it and I went to a school that actually churned out a lot of very good soccer players that went and played in the Premier League and that kind of thing and there was raw talent amongst a lot of these kids. Mm-hmm. You know, in the playground, you see the quality of individual talent that we had there was great. But that individual talent in soccer, it needs coaching to translate to being very good, you know, in a full 11-a-side uh, game. There's a big difference because then it's team, you know, how you're playing for your team. And the things that you don't learn playing soccer in the school playground are things like um, your movement off the ball, what you can do when you don't actually have the football. Uh, so, you know, if you're making a run or you're positioning on the pitch, uh, when you're right the other side of the pitch where the football is and, and the, how that matters, how you're actually creating space for the rest of your, your team or, or creating opportunities just by moving that way. And every time I watch top level football, I always marvel at it. Like every player, they'd never switch off. They're always on. They're always thinking about the positioning and their, where they're running to. And that's what I see at the level we, uh, that I played at. It's almost like the individual skill stuff. They didn't work on it with you that much. They just assumed that you had it. And you would spend all your time working on positional play and teamwork, communication, It's a lot of basic stuff, but they drummed it into you so it became second nature. So I'm going to ask you a question, then I'm going to provide a little context for it. But did you Mm -hmm. understand what type of player you were, where you fit into a team? The reason I ask that is because my kids are starting to play team sports. And especially the older one, she is, if I can describe it best, a steady player. She's a steady player. But I'm trying to show her like a team needs that player. She's not loud, but she's encouraging she's a good teammate she's calm and she just gets the ball she makes a play not the not the flashy play but she just makes the play hits the ball to the next person and then they can make the play so she's just steady but as a kid she has a really hard time seeing that did you know your role like where you fit in each team yeah so i can actually share two two levels of experience here firstly being a player but also now being a team coach so i can I can share from that perspective. My role in the team, it was different team to team and what they expected from me, but also the the way that the team was set up. So when I first started playing at Glasgow University, I was a wing back and it was very much like, this is your role. Your role is you're a defensive player, 
but you need to work your butt off and get as fit as possible to be this person running up and down the wing, right? And that's what you need to do. We we need you to be a part of the attack as well as the part of the defense. And and I just fit that role. I became as fit as I could. I worked on my sprint training and I, and I did that, but that was it. Like that was it. And I ne- I rarely strayed out of position. Um, you know, I was told off if, if I ever did. And I just played that role. I was also a fringe player at the time of just coming into the, the team. So I was on the bench a lot. You know, it's, it's like I would come in off the bench, but it was very much do your job. So maybe this is the similar to, to your daughter here. Start out, do your job and, and really get to know it and do it really well. And I actually think better players, the players I like working with, Players, I think, make a better team aren't the flashy players. Like you're saying, they're the players who master the absolute basics. And that's, for me, that's being verbal, being always talking to the players around you and telling you where they're going to be, where you're, if you're supporting them, where you want the passes to be, and then really nailing down your passing. Your passing needs to be accurate, perfect, uh, well-weighted, all this kind of stuff, right? And then moving on the ball as well. Just those things you're not a flashy player, but you're just this player that's always seems to be a part of the play, always seems to be free to play a pass to, always mm. seems to make great but simple passes. And I honestly think that is the the makeup of a phenomenal team there. Mm. When you get these teams, these players that are really flair, you know, flary players, usually they've got all of that basic stuff nailed and then they start to develop their flair. From a management perspective, it's interesting because you'll get, you want a team that's got that core of those players and that will be the foundation to allow usually egotistical players who are flary and want to be the superheroes and the superstars for the team right it allows them to be those superstars if you have that that foundation so that's how vital it it is as a player and in general I mean my advice to your daughter would be decide what player you want to be Mm -hmm. and master the basics first then push on to be that player and also talk to your coaches and say i want to be this player how can you help me be be that player so i gotta ask so you do you have a specific example who was a good example for you and what they did yes but uh, firstly a bit of a caveat to this i think the most important thing that changed me as an athlete was to go from thinking i knew better than the coaches to being coachable as one thing I would say. So that was the biggest change in me. You know, I thought I knew a lot and I thought I always had the answer. And so it's in some, a coach was saying stuff and I'm like, I don't know, why are we doing this? I don't get it. You know, I'd, I'd be questioning it and I'd have a bit of an attitude towards it. When I shifted and it's like every day I turn up to, and I do everything that the coach asks and I do it to the best of my ability. I became a much better player by doing that. So that's the first thing. In terms of the best coach I ever had, actually it was off the pitch and it was in business. Okay. And there's a guy called Dr. Steve Nissen and he ran a biotech company and I worked underneath him. And the way he coached me is firstly, he got to know me and got to know what my ambitions were. Mm-hmm. And then he told me where he saw my potential. You know, it's like, I want to push you this way. I think this is something you're really going to enjoy from what you tell me. You know, let's keep talking, but let's push you this way. And then he would throw me into situations that were just outside of my comfort zone. Like you're going to present a research paper to these people. You're going to go into this meeting. I want you to come up with ideas for this next research study. And every time I was like, 
I think I can do it. I'm a bit uncertain and unsure of myself in this situation. And he would always just go, go for it, do it. You know, I, I think this is what you want from what you're telling me. Let's go that way, work at it, try it. And I would do that and I would make mistakes. And, you know, he would always allow me to make those mistakes and then talk about it and kind of correct it and make me think in a way that was all the time I knew at the back of his mind, he's like, I still want you to go that way. And I'm pushing you. This is part of me pushing you in that direction. And I think it's the same on the soccer field. You know, it's like you have a coach that tells you, I believe in you. I know where you want to go. You need to work hard at these things, right? You're not going to be perfect at it straight away, but keep working at it and you'll get there, right? I think that's that's the best coach. All right. So I'm going to throw a couple of terms at you that may appear somewhat insulting on the surface. I I look at both of these as compliments because you've blended them very well together. So what comes first, the meathead athlete or the science nerd? That's a very tricky question because I have a hard time uncoupling them from each I other. I think as soon as I engage in a conversation with somebody about sports and performance, and this is with my my team or anybody in general, I will go towards the science side of things, right? In conversation. And I think it's as soon as it shifts to movement, that's when my meathead athlete comes out. You know, it's like uh, straight away I'm out there, I'm pushing people, you can do more than that, all that kind of stuff. I think that comes out as soon as we start moving, The con- you know, the conversation ends. But as soon as I open my mouth <laughs> in conversation, that's where the scientist comes in. So that's, I think that's the best decoupling. As soon as it's go time and we're out there playing, I forget all the science and I'm in the flow of the game and playing or coaching or whatever it is. And then you had a experience where you were shuttled from the airport. Someone you were just meeting for the first time ended up being the person who discovered HMB. So what was the first day of work like that day? (sighs) Great question. Okay, so this was Dr. Steve Nissen that I mentioned earlier, and he looked exactly like a crazy scientist should look. He had white or graying uh, disheveled hair that was very unkept, a shirt that was buttoned up incorrectly and half tucked in, very disorganized when he met him. I turned up, I actually, he didn't shuttle me from the airport. It was another professor that did that. But then on the first day, uh, I was just told to meet at this office on campus, Iowa State. I turned up, knocked on the door. There was this Dr. Nissen, disheveled guy sitting, sitting there. And he looked at me and said, who are you? <laughs> well, I'm, <laughs> I'm Rowan. I'm here to spend the next year with you doing research. And he said, oh, hang on, let me make a call. And he made a call. And then he got the phone. He said, I completely forgot that I applied for this. <laughs> and now you're here. Well, I, I guess you better come to the labs uh, with me. So he led me outside and went into the parking lot. And I expected it to be this, you know, some rundown car. And we went to the most gorgeous brand new Lexus SUV, jumped in it. And he took me out to these pristine biotech labs that were on the research park on the campus. It's because they had made lots of money. He's like a a scientist nerd who overnight made a fortune from discovering this HMB and selling the the patents on it. And, you know, he introduced me to everybody. And then he sat there scratching his head saying, well, what can we get you to do? And that's where our discussion started on mm. day one, you know, on tell me about you, what, you know, what do you want in your career? And he could see it. he's starting to kind of place me in the organization. There weren't many of us. There were only about uh, five or six of us in, in the labs there. And then threw me in the deep end. The next day I was working on research studies and 
and that was it. But yeah, it was it was quite the the shock to the system. Quite the character he was. So can you take me into the lab a little bit? What did you learn about while you were there? Like supplements, how to do research, the nutritional space in general, that type of thing. So uh, two things that I did in the first year. The first one was an animal study and it was on pigs, a feeding study. So we just fed these pigs supplements and looked at their health basically to make, and the idea was to make sure that it was safe for human consumption. And we tested an ingredient called guanadino acetate or GAA, we called it. But this is a substance that's natural to your body that you use to make creatine. So the idea was rather than feeding someone creatine, you feed them this stuff that makes your body make more creatine instead. That was the theory. So the first thing I did is I did loads of research on it, make sure that no one had done any studies on it already, because then it's not patentable if if someone has discovered it and decided it got this application. And then the second thing was to go to the local pig farm and pick out some pigs. And so, and there's me, I'm a city boy. I had never stepped foot out of the UK or, or Europe until that point. And I arrived in the Midwest USA, uh, agricultural land. And I was sent off with uh, a farmer in his pickup truck to go and get a bunch of pigs. And they were tiny, cute little guys, uh, probably weighed about, I don't know, 10 pounds each or something like that, that we, that we got. And I took them and I put them in their little uh, pens, these like feeding pens, and started feeding them this stuff. And I was holding them at arm's length, not wanting to get dirty and <laughs> completely like, is it going to bite me? I'm not sure how to handle this thing. Fast forward for another few months and I was just throwing them over my shoulder and it was great. So that was the first kind of experiment we did. We'd actually failed. So the it started to harm the pigs a little bit in the feeding. So we actually, we cut the study and and, um, didn't proceed with that. The second thing I did was to do a desk-based analysis called a meta-analysis. And I spent the rest of the year with my nose in research studies, Mm -hmm. reading every single study on supplements that improved strength and power and muscle and narrowing them down. So collect, pooling all the data. So if you had Mm -hmm. creatine, it would pull all the research studies on that carried out on creatine so that they were the equivalent of one study with all these people, yep. all these data points. And then you collect that data and then say, okay, with, now that I've got a big data pool, does creatine work or not? So did that and found that at that time, this is about 99, 1999, there were only HMB and creatine that were the two ingredients that showed across the board that they had a, an actual improvement on strength and muscle. And then in a space like nutrition, for a consumer, it's incredibly confusing. There are just landmines everywhere. Um, Like you read the latest blog or the nutritional advice and it says, take this product because science shows that it does this, 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 and this. It's backed by incredibly robust research, all that kind of thing. But I also feel... As a consumer, it's our responsibility to dig beyond the headlines a little bit. So without being trained in reading papers and understanding the mechanics behind it like you do, do you have like any like shorthand ways that we can inform ourselves better on the legitimacy of a study the fi- or if the findings themselves are even valid 
or lead me in a certain direction to believe a product supposedly does a thing which they want me to believe it does. Right. Um, yeah, the biggest issue in the industry is the lack of regulation. And that's why all of these companies are free to say proven, you know, or this study showed it and all that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of biasing. It's a lot of marketing hype uh, behind it, as you mentioned. And the industry kind of wants you to stay uh, confused, to be honest, because if you're confused, you are more likely to rely on marketing to, you know, say if somebody can build trust with you a little bit, they can then tell you what to buy, which is why GNC stores did so well until recently, because you would go in saying, like, I'm confused by what's in here. And then one of the sales staff would come over and then start to help you navigate through that and decide what to buy, depending on what you want. So it's a great way if you walk into a store confused, but ready to buy something, they've got you. And I always had a problem with that, that model. Uh, but the difficulty is, as you allude to, is the science is also written by scientists. They're not great at communicating with the general populace, unfortunately. I wish they were. I, as a scientist, I read research studies and I'm like, man, I, I have to try and figure out what you're actually saying here. You're a diamond in the rough if you're a scientist that can very well communicate the actual science to the layperson. But um, how do you overcome it? My answer a few months ago would have been, you need to jump into the government-run databases, PubMed. You can look mm -hmm. it up on Google, go there and do a bit of searching. And the main thing you're looking for is a study that showed an ingredient worked and it was in humans and it's controlled in some way. And that's a basic if you want to go to the next level down, you can start looking at larger studies or review papers or these meta-analyses that yeah. I'm talking about. So that's when you can start going, right, I need to build a body of evidence. But a new way to understand these studies a bit better, because they are complicated, a lot of them, I found is to actually use ChatGPT and use AI. You can copy an abstract from a study if you find it really confusing paste it into ChatGPT and say, summarize this into three sentences. And it's phenomenal at doing it. And you'll understand it. And then you can even say, summarize this for the layperson, and it'll do it for you. And it's a very powerful tool. I think it's one of the most powerful tools out there for, in terms of doing that and helping that, that process. So yeah, that, a few months ago, I wouldn't have said that, but now I suggest okay. ChatGPT. Was there a tipping point for you, like the spot where you just couldn't not start Blonix? Not having any money. <laughs> I, I think once I started the investment, so I started Blonix badly, to be honest. I, I definitely don't recommend doing it the way I did it. I had the idea, I had an opportunity. So the first thing I did, which I would recommend, is to sit down if you want to start a company and simply start jotting down your assets. Now, these assets can be anything. It could be something you have access to or something you own, or it could be knowledge that you have or a contact that you have. So in this instance, it was a contact. I had my old boss, this guy, Steve Nissen. When I left that research post, he said, if you ever want to work with us to sell HMB or do something along those lines, we're here for you. And he, that wasn't offered to anyone else. It was only offered to me. So I wrote down in my assets and it's like, I have the opportunity to sell HMB and get a good price for it from my old boss. Now, just that is enough of an opportunity to start a company and give me the confidence to start a company. And mm -hmm. so I then 
went and struck a deal with them to buy this HMB, found a manufacturers, and then I put money into it. And I spent pretty much every penny I had on that and making a website. So I had product in stock in the warehouse and I had a website created. That is not the way to start a company. If I did it again, the way I would do it is go, number one is create the website and make up that you've got the product. In the background, you're figuring out the pricing and that you can make it. And you're like, great, I can definitely make it. So when I've got enough orders, I will then place an order for the product. <laughs> you place, put the website up there and start to market the website and the product and fine tune your offering to people until you get people kind of wanting to give you their credit card. You know, you might have everything set up correctly on the website, but when they get to the product, it has sold out or it has back ordered until this date but you can still take people's credit cards and do it that way. I absolutely recommend it. It's called testing the market and it will tell you very quickly if you've got a good idea or not, if you've got, if you know how to get your customer base, you know, ready and primed for buying. And then once you get enough orders, then start making the product. So you actually, you know, you should even start taking in some cash before you start okay. doing that. So what I did and eventually ended up with me having to start the company is I put all my money into this and it was, $15,000 or something like that. Put all my money into inventory and a website and I then had to go out and sell it. And I had to work and work and work and it could not fail because I had no money. <laughs> but that's another thing I suggest anyone starting a business is put yourself in a situation where that, that business has to succeed. Do not have a cushy job that's really easy, that's always there and try and start a company in your evenings and weekends. It just, it's a lot harder to make it work because you're not in that desperate, I have to make that call, I have to make it happen scenario. And so I definitely recommend putting yourself in a bad situation to make it happen. So market first and be desperate is essentially the distilled business advice. Absolutely. Always market first before you launch a product. Do your best to, uh, or have a, have a customer base primed and ready for that product. But if you don't have customers and you've got a product, you don't have anything. But speaking to your website, like I'm a fan, you know, I'm a fan of what you do, but the scrolling feature bar, I see all these photos go by and I'm like, I want to do hang snatches. I want to pedal in a dark corridor on my trainer. I want to bomb down a mountain all in one day. But then what really appeals to me is that you focus on the work. Like it's not the, the victory necessarily, but it's the day-to-day -day grind where you don't feel like working out. You don't want to go out in the wet, in the cold and do a run like that's that's what I really appreciate as a as a brand. Um, you're there helping me do what I want to do in the boring moments. Yeah, I think um, it took a long time to get there, Dustin. I think uh, we were very much like a product. We have a product here and the product works Buy it. And we had that mentality at the beginning and then we found CrossFit. This is a long time ago, 10 years ago. We found CrossFit, so we found this niche of people who were working their butts off to, to compete and, and this new sport, new up-and-coming sport. And, you know, they adopted our product, really. So it enabled us to continue to focus on the product. But I wasn't too in touch with the why. Why were our products really special to our customers? You know, like, what was it about the products? All I knew was that they worked for them. They got, they I would get all these messages back, say, hey, you helped me get from here to here. You helped me achieve this goal and do this. Now, fast forward to COVID, all those CrossFit gyms were 
shutting down. So it forced us to connect directly with our customer base en masse. And at that time as well, we really needed to supercharge the brand because CrossFit has started to really plateau off as well. So I sat down with our customer base and got to know them, really got to know them and got to ask the right questions. You know, why do you do this? What is it about the product helping you become a bit stronger that's so special to you? And this is where this concept of athletic ambition came out of it. Because I said, what is it? I talked to five people today. One is an endurance athlete. Uh, one is a, and they're all ex-crossfitters, but they're now in, doing endurance or one's a yeah. soccer player, one's a, a mountain biker. And all these guys have continued taking our products. But why is that? And it came down to, they all had athletic ambition. They had it in CrossFit and they had it in all their new sports. Like they loved the grind that you're talking about. That is it, that when you have athletic ambition, it never leaves you. It's there. You're like, I love this sport that I play. If I can't play that anymore, I will find another outlet for this athletic ambition that I have. And I see it all the time. Uh, I see it. Every athlete I work with, doesn't matter what level they're at, that they have this glint in their eye when you talk about athletic performance. That's what we've gone in on. What does it take to achieve your athletic ambition? It takes cycling in a dark corridor uh, on your trainer, you know, warming up for a velodrome uh, a circuit or race that you've yeah. got on. You know, it takes that time in the gym to work on your shoulder mobility because you're, you know, you've got a game tomorrow that you, you want to be prepped for. It takes all these little things, these little bits of obsession to achieve it. But people love that journey. And ultimately, we just help that journey that little bit. We help people see those results sooner. You know, they see their progression. We assist in that a little bit. We make it, um, I would say easier, but it's not easier because we don't want it to be easier. It's more productive, right? You know, getting there that little bit sooner, getting those achievements of that little bit quicker. That's what we want. Uh, and so now we've tapped into that. And that's what I want on the website. I want people to go, this is for me. I, I know what it's like to be these people I see here. You know, we're on that journey with people. That's that's what it's about. Because it reminded me of, did you ever watch, was it Free Solo? Where yes. Alex Honnold. And yes. for me, the most interesting piece was after he had climbed this sheer rock face without ropes, they show him in the van doing two finger holds and just going back to practice. He had just done this amazing thing. What you would seem like a life goal, you would take some time off. He just kept going. Because his work wasn't done. So it, was more, it wasn't about just doing this thing. You know, I think a, a fundamental human trait is uh, one of needing purpose. Mm -hmm. We need purpose in our life. And I think if you're an athlete, that pursuit of an athletic goal is a big purpose for you. It builds confidence, adventure, and uh, friendships. And it's all about having this common purpose that you're working towards. It's not the goal. It's continually having that purpose and that, that drive and being on that journey. If you see it as the goal, you will be very depressed when you get there. Suddenly, you've achieved that goal and all of your purpose will be stripped from you. And I see this in, in sport and business. Sport, um, you see David Beckham. Uh, the, the, have you seen the, the Beckham documentary? Yes. Watch it and it's great because he obviously, from a very young age, he had this real purpose to him and this drive all the way through and the series shows him now 
and what he does, and he's kind of got this level of OCD. His house is immaculate. He's constantly organizing his clothes and, and, and this kind of stuff. He, he has to be busy and do stuff all the time. You see that in people who haven't got that outlet anymore that they had before. The other side is in business, um, where you hear these stories of these people who have been involved with building their companies for a big chunk of their life, and then they sell it to retire, and almost instantly they hit the lowest point in their life depression, you know, that kind of stuff. They, their health goes downhill, everything. And it's because they don't have that purpose and the why anymore. And usually those people go on and just start another business again. I've seen it time. They, that's how they, they go. I was happier there. I need to go back there and do it again. I feel that with me. It's like if I sold Blonix tomorrow, I would start something new and I don't want to stop that. I'm actually afraid because I've seen what it does to people. I'm afraid of being in that situation where it's like, right, that's it. You've released the money from the, the company and you can retire now and, you know, trap, do all these things that you theoretically wanted to do. And I think I would be depressed very quickly. I think it was in one of our earliest conversations where you were talking with me about the steps towards customer engagement or client engagement or people that become involved with the brand and what you're doing. And product was strangely far down the list. I think it was like number four out of seven, six or seven steps. Now that's totally counterintuitive to me because I thought product would be the showcase piece, the thing that you want to lead with. But what does placing product there do in terms of building customer relationships and trust? If I remember correctly, so this, the seven touch points that we need, like, a, and this yeah. is a marketing phenomenon of how long it takes you to remember or, or start to become interested in a brand. And it's about touch points. Now th there are quick ways so you can, if I spoke to you now, if you recommended something to me, uh, Dustin, I trust you. And so I would straight away go and check that out. That would be a great direct way. But usually for most people, it takes up to seven touch points. You know, you see a logo over there, you see it on a, until you start going, hey, you've got that T-shirt on and it's got that logo. And I've seen that now six times before. Yeah. What is that? Right. I'm going to go to the website and go and check it out. That, that kind of thing. So that, there's that. But or maybe what you're referring to is like where product is in the in the life cycle you know it's like you what you where you're selling to somebody and i think it's um yeah the actual product is a solution everything that we that we consume really is a solution to something that uh, one of the things that we perceive that we want or need you know if if it's like a, say it's a bike say it's a, a new road bike you've got an old bike but you want to go and buy a new road bike and then there's this brand out there and you're like Firstly, it's a solution. You know, it's like, I want to have a better bike. I, I need to level up because you think my problem is my bike is too old. That's what you think, right? You think oh, my bike is two seasons old now and all the new technology I need to keep up with everybody. So I need to go and buy, buy my bike. This is the problem that you're solving. But then, then on top of that, you start going, people like me buy bikes like this. This is a... a a fundamental for marketing people like me buy products like this and it's usually your peer group or what you perceive as your peer group and what you see them doing and, and wearing or you know it's or, or using and you're like i'm a mountain biker i will not buy a bike that is under say five thousand dollars because i bought a bike that was nine thousand dollars and it's amazing and I don't go down from there. None of my friends do. You know, we all have these extremely yeah. expensive mountain bikes that cost more than our cars usually. You know, and, and that's that's the way we do it. My next mountain bike, I'm not going to go, oh, I'll buy a $2,000 one. 
this time. It just, it doesn't happen, right? (laughs) All my friends would be like, what are you doing that for? It doesn't make any sense. You have to have this bike. You have to have this, this. So the product is actually the end of that journey. The product is the thing that is, is there in a way, market, good marketing is going, Hey, here's the problem. People like you align with a brand like me. And here are the, all the features and benefits of the product that is right for you. You know, and the features yes. and benefits are simply all they are are little things that you use to justify the decision, the buying decision to yourself. That's all they are, really. It's like, why are you going for this brand? Well, this brand is environmentally conscious. This brand is, they provide the best customer service. After. These are just things that justify why you bought that. And it's always funny, we tell our friends those things. So I bought this bike and man, it was awesome. It came the next day, it was delivered like this. And I had an issue with it. So I called them up and straight away it was to somebody. We tell people, we sell to our friends on the features and benefits. But the real reason we bought that is because, you know, because of those other, the bigger picture that's like problem solving and people like me buy products like this. And maybe going just a little bit further on that point, I did notice that some of your product line contains real sugar. I didn't know you were allowed to do that in a place and time that is absolutely scared to death of sugar. And for someone like me who's tried tons of different protein powders and tons of different electrolyte mixes, I know there's a taste component for sure because both the electrolytes and the egg white protein taste amazing, like the best I've ever tasted. Um, but does having the real sugar serve a purpose beyond that in terms of the absorption or delivering those nutrients more efficiently? Because I don't fully understand the science behind it. Firstly, I think my approach and opinion, and this is through years of research and understanding, is that dietary opinions that are all or nothing are, should always be ignored. If it's just protein, you know, no one would say you, you need to cut protein out of your diet. You need to cut sugar out of your diet. An all or nothing approach to that is just ridiculous. I think um, people don't understand that there is sugar. There are sugars in all real foods. There's very few real foods that, or, or no real foods I've seen have zero, absolute zero sugars in there. Meat has some carbohydrate in there. It's like, it's a tiny amount, but it's, it's in there. Also, your body uses sugar. It's the primary fuel that you use for not only movement, but things like brain function. It's a fundamental source of energy. So to say you should stay away from it in general, people misunderstand it. I think the real stay away from sugar is say, stay away from these refined sugars. I actually want to go one step further and say it's stay away from products that only have refined sugars in them. Because your body doesn't know how to process that stuff as well. It just doesn't. If you eat pure sugar, you know, something that is, uh, you know, low quality bread or something like that, it's just almost entirely refined sugar. Your body, you know, it's like, whoa, this is a massive influx of this energy that I, that I don't need. So I'm going to store it as fat and it's messing up my metabolism, doesn't know how to deal with this correctly. But in terms of our product and why we include sugar in there, There's two reasons in terms of the Hydra product that you're alluding to Mm. and hydration, your body is used to getting water from the food that we eat. And you actually get a massive amount of the water that you intake every day from food. Food contains water and that food comes into your system along with, which is always contained in the food is salts and sugars. 
And your gut actually uses carbohydrates, so it's uh, glucose and a little bit of sodium from the salt. And that's what fuels these transport, the transport system to move water into your system. If you just drink pure water, your body actually pumps glucose and sodium out into the gut to then bring that water back in. So we add it to the hydra to ensure that it's in there with it, just a little bit of sugar, not much, and a little bit of sodium to ensure that that water has what it needs to get into the system quickly. So that's why we do it there. We also include it in the in our protein powder. And the reason I've done that is firstly taste. I don't like the taste of artificial sweeteners. This tastes a bit chemically um, realm of protein powders. I'm a big believer in real food taste, make it taste real food, because then you're going to want to consume it. But also, from a training perspective, we built this product to help people achieve their athletic goals. So it needs to be, it's for an athlete or somebody who's training with purpose. When you train, you use glucose. And when you stop training, you need to replenish those glucose stores. Always. If you consume protein only after training, guess what the body does with that protein? It will turn it into glucose to replenish the glucose stores first. And anything left over, it will use for structural improvements and that kind of stuff. So if you add glucose as well as protein to what you eat after training, more of that protein is spared. That protein is spared and just used for the structural and recovery and that kind of stuff, which is what people want from a protein powder they take after training. So having this sugar in there ensures that the, you know, the body doesn't take any of that protein away to try and replenish those glucose stores. So that's why it's actually, there's a lot of science in there in the formulation of that product to make sure it's giving your body what it needs post-training just to replenish the stores that uh, that you used. Fantastic. Now, I know we are creeping up on our, our time here. Do you have time for like two fun ones to finish off with? Yeah, fire away. So this is the Coop Jester Show. And I feel like I'm on a mission to help people dial into like what makes them a little kooky and what makes them a little different. So when you hear that word, when you hear the word kook, where does your mind go? <laughs> For me personally? Yeah. Well, it straight, straight away it goes to what's kooky about me. I think that everybody is kooky, like everyone. And I lo- when people don't, I get suspicious or they're not showing it. <laughs> I'm always suspicious. I love being around people who are different, who are kooky. I think of my best friends that I love spending time with and they are all, they all have their eccentricities about them for sure. And I think (laughs) my wife will tell me, give you a list of of all of my eccentricities, but I think mine is, um, is to do with not being able to keep still. And constantly wanting to start new things and be around new people. This is, this is an interesting one. I'm, and I've had years of having to deal with this. It's about always needing the new, always needing the novel. They call it novelty complex, I believe. It took me into, uh, way into my adult years to figure out I had this. But if, for example, we're at a party and there's a group of my friends over there and it's a group of new people over there, I will gravitate towards those new people. And it's because I know my friends and they're predictable over there and I want the new and exciting and that's the the people I don't know over there. You know, I, I don't like going to vacation to somewhere I've been to before, even if I had the best time ever there. And it's because I'm like, well, I'm the new, there's yeah. the new out there constantly. Yes. And so I have to deal with that. And I've had to deal with, especially in my business career, because, you know, it's like the same company. I'm trying to build this company and it doesn't work when you've got a founder who 
a month into it, it's like, I want to try something new. I want to try something new. And I've had to wrestle with that. My staff tell me, <laughs> times, like, you want to do this this week and then next week you want to do this. And I had to really work at that and bring it down and you know, it's kind of go against my nature. But I think that's my kookiness. Interesting. But the new people at the party love that guy who makes them feel welcome. Like they need you. It, I'm interested. I, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I yeah. like that. I'm that, that type of person. But interestingly enough, the more I've had to wrestled with it and had to check my novelty complex, do feel like I've shifted back a little bit, you know, in nature. I've got the urge to go and talk to them. But nowadays I kind of go, okay, I have a filter now. Is that the right thing to do here? Like you haven't seen your friends for ages. They'll be a bit pissed off with you if you just go and hang out with other people you know, when you're there to see them. I've, I've had to kind of bring it back and be a bit more considerate with, with those things, you know, and especially having a family too, you know, my kids are like, we really want to go to this location on vacation because we, we have, you know, we loved it there, dad. And I'm there going, no, we're not going back there. <laughs> you know, I, I have I had to check these things because it's not just me anymore. Okay. Uh, the last one has to do with, uh, I always ask people a question about music. So I'm, I'm guessing you've seen the drive to survive series on, no. Oh, it's the Formula One series. And what they do, so they take the speed of a Formula One race and they slow it down around like the apex of a turn. So like you see a pass so slow that you can see the bits of rubber fly off the tire. It's really captivating stuff. In those moments where you can, you're just finding the perfect recipe or ingredient balance, say in the egg white protein, or you nail really technical descent where you can just slow it down to the frame by frame what type of music would be playing in those moments hmm there's two types um and i know this because when I, not when i'm mountain biking but when i snowboard i always have music on and there's two types one is jurassic five hip-hop so it's like quite old school hip-hop guys but they've just got there's the voices that they have are amazing uh, and i love the the cadence of their yeah. their hip-hop too uh, that kind of gets me into this flow rhythm. The other is um, is basically it's it's progressive house music. I think it's a, a type of EDM. And progressive house is house music, so it's beats and it's you know as you expect with house music. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Jump that kind of stuff, but it progresses. So the tune actually progresses, and there's new instruments come in and and that kind of stuff. And it and it has drops in it. You know, so it's like this undulating, and and I love it, especially when I'm out there on my snowboard and really getting into mm -hmm. my, to my flow and, you know, kind of through the day. I, and I love it. So that's, that's what I'll play. I'll, it'll be jumping from, the, from one to the other. Rowan, I want to thank you very much. I, I love this conversation and getting to know you a little bit better. And thanks for the advice on the type of player we should be and getting some insights into your business. So this was awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dustin. Great to be with you.